Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thanks, Karen, for doing those two Bible readings. Both of them are going to be relevant for um, the message that we'll hear today. Um, so stay tuned. But keep your Bibles open to that 2 Corinthians 12 passage. That's the main passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. In 2010, Todd Burpo and Lynn Vincent co-wrote a book of Tom Burpo's son visiting heaven. The book covers there on the screen. It's called Heaven is for Real. It sold 200,000 copies and it's reached number one in the Times bestseller non-fiction paperback category in March 2011. The story revolves around a little boy named Colton who was unwell as he contracted appendicitis. So his parents, they rushed him to the emergency room in which he required emergency surgery. The surgery was a success, but months afterwards, Cotton told his parents that during the surgery, he left his body and visited heaven. Cotton could describe events that seemed impossible for him to have known about. Examples include of knowledge of his mother giving um, a miscarriage to an unborn sister in 1998 before he was alive. He also stated how he met Jesus riding a rainbow-coloured horse and sat in his lap while angels sang songs to him. The book has since become a film and it's been loved and hated by a number of different Christians worldwide. But I want to ask you this. Do you think that sharing such experiences is helpful for people to know? Well, today the Apostle Paul is going to give an answer to that question as he speaks about a similar experience that occurred to him. But before we explore this rich passage in 2 Corinthians 12, I want to pray for us as we prepare our hearts to hear what God has to say. As you would have known in our second Bible reading, Paul doesn't just mention this experience, but he also shares about another experience that caused him great suffering. And the way that he reacted to that experience is completely and utterly uncommon to the way our world would react. It's an example that I find quite chilling, as I don't think I would react that way. So would you please join with me as I pray and think through what we need to change when, when considering God's sufficient grace in suffering. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have read... And as we'll come to see, please let our hearts be willing to hear your word to us now so we may be prepared when suffering arrives at our door, knowing that your grace is sufficient in times of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we took a little bit of a detour in our book of 2 Corinthians, but we're back this week and we find ourselves at the end of a section where Paul is trying to illustrate what his true Christian maturity looks like. And at this point, Paul is fearful for this little church that he's planted in Corinth as they seem to be giving up on their true husband, Christ, and falling for other lovers in whom they're wanting to gain their attention. In the first century in which the Greco-Roman culture was dominant, people prized speakers who had great charisma. They enjoyed listening to philosophers and their use of rhetoric and speech. And their content wasn't always about substance. 
but mainly about style. And so after Paul had left this little church with the gospel, these men would come into the church with their bravado and captivate these Christians. And Paul is entitled this group super apostles, almost like a bit of a mock. The equivalent today might be this man. Put up your, put up your hands if you know who that is. I think probably Flinders might not might be the only one that knows. All right, there's three people in the audience. His name is Andrew Tate. Tate is a former kickboxer, now a social media influencer. He has 12.7 billion social media followers and more Google searches about him have been recorded in contrast to Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian. Tate speaks with authority and his influence stems from his big boasts about women and sexuality and is rightly labelled the king of male toxicity. Strangely enough, with such a, large, such a large base, young men are taking hold of his claims. And this is the same context which Paul has found himself in. He's contesting against people like this, who have great style and streakhead than he has. In his first letter, he's warned against them following anyone other than Christ. But it's gotten so bad as he concludes his second letter... He wants to show the futility of these super apostles and their thinking by taking a page from their book. And as he does so, he's going to do some boasting of his own. And he started this in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, verse 16. He says this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. And he continues on in verse 1, chapter 12. You can see it there in your Bibles. He says, he will go on boasting, even though he admits there's nothing to be gained by doing such an act. And one way in which these super apostles gain their notoriety is by going to some lengths about visions and revelations. And so to play the game, he gives an account of his own heavenly vision that happens to happen to him, which leads us to our first point in our sermon there. There's three points there on the screen. and We're going to be looking at the first point in verses 2 to 7. In that small um, verses there from 2 to 7, we get a small insight into this particular vision. But you might have noticed there isn't really much information about what he's saying. There are two things that need to be mentioned about this vision. He seems to be reluctant to give over the identity of this particular man who gains this vision. And he also seems to be reluctant to tell us any real details of the vision. Firstly, surrounding this man's identity, in verse 2 he states, He knows a man. When you read this for the first time, your mind instantly wants to try to figure out, well, who is this man who's gained such an incredible vision? And throughout this passage, this man's identity is never disclosed. But by the time you get to verse 6 and 7, it feels like the most reasonable explanation is that Paul is this man. You can see that in verse 7. Specifically, God wants to prevent Paul from becoming conceited. Why? Due to this surpassing greatness of that revelation that he's received. It'd be unusual if he received a thorn, this painful experience, if he didn't actually experience the first experience, that being this heavenly revelation. And the question that we need to think through is, why does he distance himself from it? Why does he speak about it in the third person? Why doesn't he just admit it? Well, I think it's because he wants to try to not be associated with it. We'll come back to this point shortly. Secondly, there 
seems to be a reluctance to tell about any real details concerning this vision. Paul doesn't mention if he met Jesus riding a rainbow-coloured horse, but there are some very little details that he provides. This vision occurred 14 years ago, and he got caught up into the third heaven. And if you're wondering, what is this third heaven? Well, the first one being, well, the sky above us. You might often hear someone say, um, and um, we looked up to the heavens. That's the way that word is being used. So the first one is the sky. The second heaven is our solar system, so the planets and the stars. And the third, well, that's the place where God dwells. That's heaven. We can be certain of this, as you can see in verse 3. Paul refers to this place as paradise, paradise being that place which Jesus promises to the thief on the cross when they're both dying. Paul doesn't even state in this vision whether he actually visited this third heaven, whether it was in his body or out of his body, you can see that he repeats that both in verses 2 and 3. And the reason for his reluctance is stated in verse 4. The details cannot be told or uttered. But the question I want to go back to is why? Why does Paul choose not to provide a full revelation? Why doesn't he disclose his identity as being this one who has received such a revelation? I think it's because Paul would prefer to speak about weakness rather than his strength. You can see there in verses 5 and 6, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. And it goes again in verse 6, He refrains from it so that no one may think more of him, more than he sees or hears from him. A Christian writer has once quoted this, Matthew Henry. He says this, As much as against the grain it is for a proud man to acknowledge his infirmities, so much is it against the grain for a humble man to speak about his own praise. I think this is the case for Paul. He is the type of person who doesn't want to toot his own horn. You know, as people, it can often feel very unnatural, isn't it, to not present ourselves in the best light, to speak highly of ourselves in the company of others. For we're all eager for someone to know that we are, you know, capable and we're talented and we're clever, that we aren't just, you know, useless and just amateurs or dumb. So what motivates Paul to speak so reluctantly about himself rather than speaking so grand about himself? I think it's because before others, he doesn't portray himself to be any different from anyone else. That he's not some type of super Christian. Whereas for this man, Andrew Tate, well, he's a man that speaks so boastfully of himself. I think it's most likely that he's compensating for all the qualities that he wish he did have. But you know, before God, such false confidence can easily be eroded. For in front of him, we are, well, we are no one. So we need to be careful not to masquerade ourselves as something we are not. This is why I think he's so reluctant about sharing visions and revelations because he doesn't want to give cause to boast, to pretend that he's someone that he's not. Whereas Paul prefers to speak about, he prefers to speak about his weakness, which leads him to have a painful experience, which he's willing to post about in verses 7 to 10. In verse 7 we read that Paul was given a thorn in his flesh. And that thorn was a message of Satan. And this message brought great pain for Paul. 
Once again, we're not provided much with details surrounding this experience, but we know that it produced prayer in his life. For three times, he prayed concerning this issue. And all three times, God chose not to relieve the situation. But instead, Paul received a message from God. That message being that God's grace was sufficient for his power, for his power is made perfect in weakness. See, it's that last little bit in verse 9 that makes no sense to our world, right? See, what it should say is God's power is made perfect in, in strength. For how can anything really be powerful if it's weak? But you know, when you review Jesus' life, you see a man who is God, who is powerful, deliberately placing himself in weak positions. Today in that that first Bible reading, in the Mark reading, we see Jesus desperately praying to his father shortly before he's able to be crucified. And he did this three times, asking his father to get him out of here, just like the Apostle Paul did with his painful experience. Now at, this, now at any stage, Jesus could have just simply pressed the eject button. He could have easily withdrawn himself from this situation. So why did he stay? He stayed because he was trusting his father's strength. He trusted in the plan that they had both established before the beginning of time that he would face death and he'd be raised to life through his father's strength. See, Jesus trusted his father to, prov- to provide us with an example to live by. That's why in that particular verse, in verse 9, that message that Paul hears, grace is sufficient for in this gift of salvation, we need to acknowledge that we are weak and we need to trust on his strength that God knows what he's doing in those moments. Paul will continue to boast all the more gladly of his weakness, as you can see there in verse 9, so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. It's like um, being in a cooking contest and Heston Blumenthal is your cooking partner. See, with your limited cooking skills and his amazingly professional cooking skills, your best strategy to win is for you to do nothing and for him to do everything. See, he's able to produce the perfect dish without you. Your role, well, your role is just to trust him. But if you think more highly than you ought, what you're saying is, Heston, you know what? I know you do a lot with liquid nitrogen and stuff, but you know your cooking skills, they're insignificant. They're, they're, not, they're not fully evolved. You know, I can bring something to the party. Now, that's craziness, isn't it? Because you are you, and he's a Michelin star chef. See, what's bound to happen is if you get involved, is that dish won't be perfect. You're better off leaving it to the professional. Just like Christ knew that his father's strength was enough, we need to be people who are quick to show that we don't have life together. We're weak. And that's a good place, for it means that we rely on his grace for our strength. Going to our third point, dwelling in discomfort. See, the temptation in all of us is to walk away from God in times of suffering, right? But never forget that suffering makes us weak. That's the purpose of it. It should draw us closer to God. 
We can see this vividly in our own passage today, that that thorn was to stop Paul from being, well, conceited, for him to stop thinking more highly of himself than he should, to make him stop boasting in himself and to make him boast about God. C.S. Lewis um, quotes this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a death world. In that sense, suffering, suffering is God's instrument to discipline us. See, often in our hearts, we minimise the amount of work that needs to be done on us, don't we? We can think of ourselves as maybe needing a simple DIY for us to be fully perfect. Yeah, you know, we have some kind of rough edges, but nothing a quick fix can't solve, right? But actually, we need major renovations in our life. See, in light of God and his perfection, there's just so much work that needs to be done on us. It's when you see the great renovation that needs doing in our lives, then suffering can slightly be more bearable. That's why in verse 10, Paul can say, I'm content with weakness and insult and hardship and persecution and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, he can be content because God is pushing him to himself, which is the best thing for him. Suffering is tough, right? See, if I were to stop my sermon right now and ask you to tell me how you've suffered in the past, I'm sure we'll have hours of content. Everyone has a story. We all know that in this world, suffering is inevitable. We all will or have experienced it, and we all want to be free from it. We all want to be alleviated from it. And no one should feel the need to stay in it. But when it does come, and it will come, we need to be people who echo the words spoken to, God, spoken to Paul. Your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in weakness. When you are weak, then you are strong. For there is something more important than having your sufferings alleviated. It's your contentment in him. You know, I pray that you would remind me of this when suffering arrives at my door, when it will arrive at my door. And I pray with great gentleness that we will be reminded, we will remind each other of this when we are weak, then we are strong. The picture on the screen now is um, a lady named Helen Roosevelt, who was a missionary in the Congo in the 1960s. She experienced great suffering and had many sins committed against her and upon her. In 1964, Congo was going through a civil war and she felt the situation had gotten so bad that she was about to leave. She was actually considering whether she should stay. And in that moment, she heard God say to her, Am I not worthy? See, above everything else, God is worthy to be followed. For in those moments, he's calling us to himself. We must never lose sight of his face, especially when we're going through hardship. Thank you.